when we're honest, we all know that there are things that we carry inside of our hearts that make it hard for us to be the people that we ought to be. Do you see that in your own life? That there are weeds and thorns and rocks that grow in here that prevent the good things that ought to be growing from coming into being. We wish it weren't so, but it is. The truth about God is that he intends for each of us to be his agents of good things in the world. He intends to bring about justice and righteousness through his people when their hearts are growing the fruit that he means to see growing in there. Thank God that Jesus is alive. Does anyone else feel uh, their heart wake up when you remember that he's alive? It's easy to forget that, but Christians believe he's alive. And today what I want you to see is that Jesus is alive so that he can come to you and me and every person so that we can have those things in our hearts which make it impossible for us to grow removed as he operates like a gardener in here so that the good things that God wants to bring through you and through me in our lives and, and, and into the lives of others will actually have a chance of growing because of the influence of Jesus who is alive. If you have a Bible, find your way to the 20th chapter of John. There, John recounts the morning on which Jesus came out from the grave and encountered Mary. Every one of the Gospels tells the resurrection story in its own way. In John, it was Friday when Jesus had been crucified, and that afternoon after he died, a few of his followers took his body down and they put it in a grave which was given by a wealthy man. It was a grave that was in a garden. If you've been with us in these last few weeks, you know that we're focusing on the theme of the garden as one of the ways that we can learn about how God means to see us changing. The resurrection took place in a garden, no mistake there. Early on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, one who had loved Jesus deeply, she went before the sun was even up to go to the grave to see if she could prepare his body for a proper burial. When she got there, she was stunned to see that the stone was rolled away. Her assumption was that the guards, the Roman guards, must have removed his body, and she was heartbroken at that. She left and went to find some of the other apostles, and she told them what had happened, and they rushed from their homes to the grave to see the stone rolled away, as she had said, and they went inside, and they saw that his body was gone. It, confer it confirmed for them what they suspected, uh, that insult was added to injury. Not only had he died, but they wouldn't be able to provide a proper burial. They decided to go back home, but Mary was so heartbroken that all she could do was to stay in that place and weep. Before we read it, I want to ask you so that you can connect to it. Do you have a memory of a heartbreak that was so great that all you could do is just cry? You know that the more you love, the more you can hurt. And that was what it was for Mary. Watch what happens. This is verse 11 in chapter 20. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. Can you imagine what it would be like to look into the grave and there to see two angels? Would it shock you? I know it would for me. Be utterly stunned to see this, but Mary is so heartbroken, she doesn't even see, in effect, these two angels. The only thing she sees is that Jesus is not there. 
And she wanted to see him there because she wanted to prepare his body for a proper burial. Uh, There, looking in and not seeing Jesus, the angels speak up to her in verse 13. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She doesn't even respond to the splendor of these two angelic beings there in the grave. The only thing she can think of is that Jesus is not there. And the only reason that uh, she weeps is because of the love and the profound love that she had for this one who's now gone and in her mind will be forever taken away from her. Grief always is greater when the person who has been lost matters more. And Jesus had been the greatest blessing that Mary had ever experienced in her whole life. I wonder if that's true for any of you in here. Can you say that, that Jesus is the greatest blessing? Um, you're meant to, by the way, and if, if that seems miles away, let me tell you that God's desire is that every person would be able to say the greatest blessing in my life is Jesus. Mary was able to say that. She believed he was gone, and the reason that he was such a blessing to her was that he had saved her. I know that phrase means different things in different people's ears, but for Mary... It meant that when she encountered Jesus, her life was a mess from the inside out. And after he met her, he changed everything for her and transformed her into a person of peace and confidence and joy. Can you imagine that? Inner chaos. That was who she was. Depression, anxiety, worry, fear. Her whole life was a mess from in here. But when she encountered Jesus, it turned around and she became a completely different person. And that's why she's so sad. And that's why the angels say to her, look again at their question, woman, why are you weeping? Because they see the grief on her face. But in that question, there's also a statement which is hidden. Have you ever hidden a statement in a question? You ever do that? When I was little, my mom used to say, Christian, do you want to clean up your bedroom? No, I don't, but that wasn't what she was saying, right? Here they're saying, why are you weeping? Not because they wonder why, but because they know that she doesn't need to be weeping. They're saying you don't need to weep because as they face Mary right behind her in the garden, Jesus is standing there and they can see with their own eyes that the one she thinks she has lost has not been lost to her, but instead he's right there with her. Jesus is alive. And aside from this story, it is always true that Jesus is right there with us. And he's especially with us in our grief, but she can't see it yet. And after speaking with the angels, then Mary turns around and look what happens. This is verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it that it was Jesus. Do you know that grief always messes with your perception? Don't make decisions when you're really sad because you're going to make the wrong decision. She can't see what's right in front of her face because the tears make it impossible for her to make it out. But there Jesus is, standing with her face to face. Silently, she looks at him, still crying, and then Jesus asks her two questions. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, Why are you weeping? Does that question sound familiar? Same question as the angels asked with the same subtext. Jesus is saying to her, you don't need to be weeping. Look at his second question. Whom are you looking for? Jesus has good grammar. Do you notice that? It's whom, not who. There's a lot of reasons to like Jesus. (laughs) I'm right here, he's saying. 
He knows who she's looking for. And he wants her to see that, that there's no need for tears and that he's right there with her. Because he comes to us as he comes to Mary right in the midst of our belief that we've lost him and he comes for a reason. And this now is what I pray that you would grasp. Not just for Mary, but for you. That Jesus is alive and comes to us, comes to you for a reason. And it's because he wants to see something good growing in you. And he knows everything bad growing in you and he wants to be at work in your heart to remove those things that are growing that are not good so that he can be at work to plant those things which need to be growing. That's exactly what he wanted with Mary. Now, what happens next is remarkable. John reports to us a misunderstanding in perception. He tells us that Mary made a mistake in who she thought she was talking to, and hidden in her mistake is a lesson for all of us right where we are. Look very carefully with me at verse 15 in the middle. This is what John tells us. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, it's important that we do not skip over the detail that John chooses to include. Mary thinks she is speaking with, notice, the gardener. Now, as readers, we know that it's Jesus, right? So in this moment, we're tempted to think, oh, Mary's got it wrong. It's Jesus, not the gardener. And when we do that, right here, we've made our own mistake in perception that in an ironic way matches Mary's and illuminates both because the one that she is speaking to is Jesus. She doesn't know that. And the one she's speaking to is the gardener. And we haven't yet seen it until we take a moment and pause and see that in a spiritual sense, Jesus in the garden there is the true gardener of all of creation. And the world doesn't know it just yet, but it will. Because he's come to make his blessing felt as far as the curse had been found in the garden of the world that had a curse in it from that original garden. And for you and me, very importantly right now, he's come to talk to Mary because he still has some work to do in her heart. She doesn't know it yet. Just like he's got some work to do in your heart still. Do you know it? I'm glad that some of you will say yes. The truth about all of us is we need Jesus to be at work in the gardens of our heart. You see, when Jesus first met Mary, he was her gardener in a spiritual sense. Think with me for a little bit here. What does the gardener do in the garden? Okay, let's dwell on that for a moment. In essence, the gardener works in the soil to manage growth. That's the simplest way to put it. He turns over the old hardened earth breaking it up so seeds have a place to grow. He digs out the rocks and stones that are in there that will inhibit the roots from going down. When weeds start to grow up, all the way uh, down in their depths, he pulls them out. If there are brambles and thorns, even though it cuts up his hands, he takes care of them. The gardener is committed to doing the work required so good things can grow. Now, that is precisely who Jesus had been for Mary when he met her. Some of you will know, there's only a little bit that we know about Mary Magdalene. Magdala is the place that she's from. There's just a few other things we know. She had two other friends who all together went along with Jesus and the other disciples, and they supported his ministry out of their own resources. That is a very unique fact, especially in the first century. For women to have money that they had the freedom to dispose of and to give it to a traveling rabbi, miraculous. Why was she so invested in Jesus? Here's the one other thing we know about Mary. When she met Jesus, this is what the Bible says, seven demons went out of her. I don't know what you think of 
when you think of demons. Maybe you picture men in red tights and with a pitchfork, especially today, it's Halloween, horns. That is not what is meant in the first century by demons. But what is meant, listen now, are those non-physical entities which have power nonetheless to get inside of a person and exert influence on them, which is significant. Voices which say in one's mind, don't try that. You're certainly not good enough to do it. Or voices in the heart which say, you are going to fail because you are a failure. You have been and you always will be. Or those, those incessant uh, ideas that run around in, in that head of yours, you're worth nothing. You're of no value. Other people have God's grace, but you surely don't. Or, or maybe just as bad. You are perfectly valuable, and those other people who you disagree with, they could never have God's grace. They don't deserve it. Not like you do. Listen again. Malevolent forces, which though disembodied, have the power to exert corrosive, destructive, depressive influences on a person from the inside out. If you don't like the word demon, those are what what Jesus chased out of the life of Mary when he met her so that instead of having thorns and thistles and briar growing in her heart, she could finally grow good things. Can you see it? And now he's with her again in this garden because he's not done yet. And what he does in this morning is come to every one of us and say, if you will acknowledge the growth in your heart that will keep you from bearing good fruit, the demons that still inhabit you or the weeds or the thistles or the thorns or the stones that are inside of you. Jesus is saying this to us now. If you'll let me and my resurrection power be the gardener for you, then I will continue to be at work removing the things that keep you from being the woman, the man that I've made you to be, and then you'll see good things growing. That's what he says. I would ask you now, in all honest self-reflection, to identify, if you would, at least one thing which is growing in your heart which is like a weed that you can imagine Jesus would want to remove from inside. Can you, can you picture one thing? Don't make it about somebody else. Let it be about you. How about two things? Can you find two that are growing in there? I imagine some of you might be able to get the three. <laughs> I, I sat in the middle of the week and wondered, could I come up with seven? And I'm not very happy with how quickly I was able to arrive at seven. And how I kept going. You know, I then thought, what do I want more than anything as the pastor of Renaissance Church and the pastor to the people who will be here this morning on Sunday? I thought ahead and I thought, I want them to be able to see honestly what those things would be for them so that Jesus, the gardener, would have a much greater likelihood of, of removing so that good things can grow. And then what I did is I made a list of seven for me and I felt, I should set them before you so that you can see what grows in this guy's heart and maybe God can use that to help you let Jesus uproot the things growing in your heart that shouldn't be there. So this is me being vulnerable. Would you support me in that? I'll need it. I have seven for me and maybe there'll be some of these for you. When I think back to the first thing that I can recall Jesus dealing with in my heart, What I see is his gracious presence dealing with insecurity. When I was in uh, middle school and high school, I was always the smallest kid in every one of my classes. I was a late bloomer. When I got to high school, all of the kids called me Pee Wee, and it hurt my feelings, and I didn't like it. 
And the girls who I had crushes on, they thought I was cute like a puppy dog or a stuffed doll. And I did not like that. And the way that I dealt with that was to develop a mean-spirited sense of humor that I could use to knock at least some people down to feel like I was building myself up a bit, a bit and, and it worked, but I didn't like myself. Because when I was honest, I didn't like who I was becoming. It was wrong. My insecurity was like a great stone right in the center of my heart, buried beneath the soil, making it hard for good things to grow, as insecurity always does. Maybe someone here has insecurity in their heart, and if you do, Jesus wants to come and deliver you from that, as he did and still does for me. I went to a church camp uh, for a retreat when I was 13, and I remember the retreat speaker saying very plainly that there's nothing which you hide from the people around you that is unknown to God. He knows us all the way on the inside. And when I first heard that, I felt concerned. But then he added, and God loves us perfectly just as we are. And when he said it, the Holy Spirit helped my heart believe it. That I, just as I was, was beloved by God. He read a passage from the Bible. Listen to these words from Romans 5.8. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When a person gives something of value for another thing, it demonstrates how much that thing is worth to them, he told us, and God gave Christ for you. That's how much you are valued by him, and not when you had it right, but while you were still a sinner. And what that did in that moment, that word, that was like a, a, a pitchfork going into my heart and digging out some of that insecurity so that I could have that removed so that good things could begin to grow. And, and if you are here this morning and that's one of the things that's in your heart, let Jesus dig out the insecurity and replace it with a profound sense of his love for you because he loves you just as you are. One demon chased out. Now, the enemy is clever. And when Jesus tears up one weed, the demons, they, they're opportunists. They say, look, well, what can we plant in its place? And as soon, and this is honest, this is me, as soon as my insecurity to began, began to diminish, why, I felt pretty good about myself, and that meant another weed began to grow in its place. Any guesses? Pride. Thank you for knowing me. I appreciate it. <laughs> the trick is, God does equip us to do good things. But the twist of the enemy who wants to plant things in our hearts that are not good for us or others is to make us proud of those good things which God is enabling in us so that we take credit for the thing which God is doing so that we try to make ourselves feel better by getting glory for ourselves rather than directing it toward where God uh, has done these good things. Do you know what helps tear up pride if it's like a weed growing in the garden? Do you know what the weed killer for the weed pride is in the garden? Failure. Who likes failing? Oh, gosh. I stand before you as a man who has been worked on by Jesus through his failures. I have seasons when I look back and I can see my blunders and my missteps and my mistakes that put me in the position of having to let go of the, 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 the wickedness of pride, which it really is a wicked thing, and, and instead to embrace humility. And that is what we all need. All of us need that. 
And it's what God means to see growing in us in place of the pride that will keep us forever uh, alone and, and not learning and, and, and corrosive to the people around us. Listen to this beautiful word from the Apostle Peter who knew what it was to fail and have his pride dashed. This is 1 Peter 5, 5. All of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Maybe you know the story of Peter of how he was proud and certain of his own accomplishments before Jesus, and then how he was humbled, and instead of rubbing it in his face, Jesus said, hey, just love the people around you. And loving the people around us means letting this pride get torn away by failure if it has to be so that we can be humble. Uh, Have you ever had the experience of being blessed by another person's humility? Of course, it's good when humility is growing. Jesus will dig down if you let him to root up the pride however he needs to because God opposes the proud. And every moment you embrace pride, you are in opposition to God and you do not want to stand up against God. It won't work. When you will seek humility, wearing it like clothing, you will find God's grace. Uh, Now, um, as I've said, I've looked back in the past and seen moments where my pride has diminished. And when that happens and it goes away, you know there's a companion uh, thorn bush that wants to grow up and protect your wounded um, self-image, and when it does, it, it, it always takes the form of a third weed, which I can unfortunately say I know about from experience, and it is ambition. And by that, I don't mean the drive to do well. I would call that something else. I mean the drive to do better than other people. Does anyone in here know that? How many of you like to compare yourselves to others? Actually, let me say this. How many of you are tortured by comparing yourselves to others, but you do it anyway? Nobody likes it, but we do it, right? Because ambition whispers into our ear, you are only good if you're better than them. Oh, what a, what a corrosive thing it is when that starts to grow in a heart. And I have to say this again. I wish I weren't speaking from experience, but in every season of my life, I can see Jesus graciously dealing with ambition in my heart because whenever pride is wounded, ambition springs up coming to the defense. So I am driven not just to do my best, but better than. A strategy to sort of uh, prop up my sense of being superior. And it takes different forms according to what you care about. And here, reflect on your own uh, experience in life. What do you value most? And ask, am I ambitious compared to others in that thing which I measure my value according to? Here comes a confession. For pastors... It's usually comparing church attendance with other pastors. And it's embarrassing to have to say that, but it's true. I have lots of friends who are pastors, and we all fight not saying how many people are coming back since the pandemic started. I wish it weren't true. It is. Many of you will experience your own form of this if you're honest. Sometimes it's how much are you earning or saving, or maybe it's how your kids are outperforming the kids of, of your peers. And, and, and you feel bad every time you see their, the way they post uh, you know, pictures of their last vacation, how good their children look. And you know on your vacation, your children were awful. <laughs> Whatever it is. <laughs> right? It's true. The, the fact is that Jesus, the gracious gardener of our hearts, knows our ambition and wants to help us with it. And so he invites us to receive the antidote to ambition, which is profoundly beautiful. It's to stop competing to look better than others and start competing to try to make others look better than everyone around them. Look at Romans. This is so magnificent. Look at Romans 12.10. This is so beautiful. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
It's like be ambitious, but in a backwards way. Instead of ambitious for honor, ambitious in showing honor. Can you think of someone right now who you could show honor to in a way that would be unexpected and would lift them just a little bit? That's one of the ways that Jesus deals with ambition in our hearts by encouraging us to make someone else look good. If you're thinking of someone right now, take note and then in an unexpected way, praise them. Or if they're not around and your friends are around, start talking about that person, about how good they are to your friends. Confide secrets about how smart they are or how gracious they are or how generous they are. Tell those stories. Uh, Well, actually, maybe not the generous part. We're not supposed to brag about that, even for others. Now, these first three, uh, insecurity, pride, and ambition. These are are very particular when I just look at myself in the years behind me and I can see Jesus dealing with these. The next four that I have for you, I have to say that these have emerged in light of what I've experienced, especially in the last year, because from my perspective, this year behind us has been really proficient at helping all kinds of ugly things grow in our gardens. Do you agree? That's one way to describe the world as it's been is, man, there are a lot of weeds growing, a lot of thorns and briars, and it seems like whatever it is that's um, being dumped upon us has really fostered a healthy growth of these unhealthy things. And so these four I see in the world around me and in me as well, and and I I suspect that maybe if those other three weren't yours, probably at least some of these will also um, have been seen by you. Uh, I bet you felt the negative effects of isolation in the year and a half behind us. I sure have. Maybe you've never thought of isolation as a demon, but maybe this morning you should think of it like that. And if not a demon, then a really unhealthy weed growing in our hearts. For a time, we had to be apart from one another. Do you remember those early days? And in those early days, for people like me who are extroverts, it was like torture. There were people who are introverts who loved it. And I remember when they told me, oh, this is so pleasant, I wanted to, ooh. Uh, But after a little while, didn't we all get used to it and adjust, even those of us who loved being with people? So that when it came to meetings, we were much more comfortable not being around people. When it came to social time, do I want to go over to their house? Nah, I'll sit at home by myself in my pajamas. Maybe I'll drink something while I watch them on a screen. People do that. Even when it came to church, we got very comfortable at not being together. And and that, that was like ruts in a road that we've all been accustomed to, to, to riding along in, so that when we were able to begin not rolling along in those ruts anymore, some of us were really used to it, so we stayed alone even still. You know that when we were pre-recording our services on Sundays, it was the first time in over 20 years where I wasn't with people every single Sunday morning face-to-face. And that was so hard for me. And then when I got used to sleeping in on Sundays and eating oatmeal and drinking coffee in my pajamas, watching me on the screen, it wasn't so bad. (laughs) But listen now. (laughs) Tell me if this is true also. I'm going to add one more thing to this. Have you noticed how good the things that we watch on television have become in the last year? They're better than they used to be. The shows are more engaging. Has anyone else noticed that? And what that's done, listen now, is it's made it so that we have a whole new host of characters to fall in love with and care about. 
and therefore less reason to actually be caring about and love real people in our lives. I, God made me to be empathetic to real people, and when I'm empathetic for someone that I don't know on screen, I have less of a need to meet that need with a real person. I was made to be angry about things that are going wrong in relationships. And when I get angry at the way that character is treating that character on some TV show, I'm able to ignore the ways that the people that I know are treating each other that are wrong. And all of this means alone, alone, isolation, isolation. And that's a demon. That's like the garden ground becoming so hard that nothing can be planted in it. And what I need is King Jesus, Gardener Jesus, to come along and break up the ground in whatever way he does. And I'll tell you, one of the ways he'll do that is when we turn off those programs and engage with real people face-to-face. And when we say, no, let's be together face-to-face. And now some of you are being tempted with pride. I come every week, unlike those people who still watch online. But watch out. We need to be together, and we need to be open to everyone coming together, and we need to open our hearts to this guidance. Listen to the way it's put in Hebrews. This is chapter 10 in Hebrews, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. That is, let's think of real people and how to move each other to do good things and to love in the world, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Let's own our own instincts toward isolation instead of pointing at others. I still struggle with wanting to just go home and and sit there on the couch, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, It's time for us to be together. Now that we're able to be back together, it's time to get out of those isolation ruts, and that will be work for everybody, but we really ought to, because to stay alone is to cut ourselves off from the gifts of community and to cut the community off that, that, uh, from the gifts that we bring when we're together, and there is another weed which is 100% certain to grow. The more that we're isolated, the more that this unhealthy weed grows, and it's the weed of suspicion. This I've seen a lot of in these days. Have you? Alone, we all spend more time online, we're on the television, we're on our phone with the news. And in every story that you read or you listen to, there will always be a set of victims on the one side and villains on the other. All news stories do this, all of them. There is no exception, and they will all condition you to put yourself on the victim side and the other people that you're not talking to and that you're not around on the villain side. And and when this happens, uh, if you will pay attention, you are now being conditioned always to relate to those others on the other side in a very particular way and the fuel that that will be used to keep you um, uh, at a distance from them is the fuel of suspicion. I wonder whether you are on my side or not. And, and what happens is because we expose ourselves to this kind of conditioning for hours a day, and you do, right? It bleeds into your personal relationships. And if you haven't seen someone for a while, then when you see them again, what comes to mind is all of the stories that we've been conditioned to divide up over, and you wonder, Ooh, which side are they on? Are they with me, us victims, or are they the villain? Has anyone else felt this dynamic? I know I have. And it happens in church. I see people that I haven't seen for a while, and I wonder, which side are they on? What do they think of me? If I share my opinions about this side or that, are they going to be uh, my ally, or are they going to be my adversary? And it, it leads into not just relationships at church, but at work and in family. And, and we're so used to being suspicious, it even comes into uh, our relationships with people that we know we agree with. We're just 
conditioned over and over again to wonder and be suspicious. And the solution, here it is, is to let the gardener Jesus come and tear out whatever patterns of behavior foster suspicion in us, okay? And, and I don't know what it will be for you, but whatever it is, you should open your mind to uh, his influence to push you away from whatever those patterns are. Uh, and by the way, this isn't brand new, uh, that people have reasons to be suspicious of others and all kinds of controversies to get engaged in. All the way back in the first century when the Bible was being written, it happened then. Listen to what Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, 23. He writes, have nothing to do with stupid and senseless controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Doesn't that sound like something that could have been tweeted today? Stupid and senseless. Listen, a lot of the issues that people divide up, up over are really important issues. They are. And we should think carefully about them. Of course we should. But if all they do is breed quarrels, you know that. If it's the thing that only ever leads, leads to a fight, the guidance here from God's word is stay away from it. Keep thinking faithfully. Subject yourself to true learning. And then remove yourself from whatever cycle feeds unhealthy growth have nothing to do with stupid and senseless controversies. Please listen now. I'm not just wagging my finger at you. I'm talking to myself here too because I also am tempted with this because the enemy is clever. Now, if you stay in the cycle and let suspicion grow, and again, I'm speaking from experience because there are times when I deal with my own anxiety by just saying, let me read a few news stories to see what's happening in the world. That's not what happens, right? It just gets me tied up again. When I do that, it breeds another kind of unhealthy growth, and, and this one is profoundly strong. It is the weed of aggression. Has anyone else recognized in themselves aggression growing the more they interact with news stories, yes or no? It is the direct result of the mood fostered by the way information is conveyed to us these days. And just think of it. The television personality who is reporting the facts is angry, outraged, and I know it, I can tell, right? Sometimes they're screaming and it's not even hidden, right? And you're getting angry, you're dragged into their mood while you're watching it. But sometimes they do it in a much more cultured and measured way, but it's not hard to tell that deep down they're enraged. And what happens when you subject yourself to that over and over is your mood conforms to that person's mood. And, and the more they are enraged, the more you're invited into identifying with that and feeling aggressive about those others that you're, uh, that you're uh, sure are on the other side. And, and I promise you this is happening to everyone that we know. And, and to me, and to you too. This summer, I was in Ocean Grove, a delightful place where I preach in the summers. And there's a very kind, older crowd that I interact with. One woman, I'd seen her year after year. And if you ask me, how would you describe her? I would say she is the sweetest, gentlest person I know. And she invited me for coffee this summer. And when we sat down together, I, I could tell something was, wasn't sitting right with her. And, and after a few minutes, I said, can you tell me? It seems like you're struggling. What's wrong? And she just looked at me. She said, I am so angry all the time. I said, what's, what is it? What's wrong? Everything that's going on in the world, aren't you angry too? And then she said, every time I watch the news, it just makes me enraged. I can't believe what's happening out there. And I said, how often do you watch the news? She said, all the time. She literally said that. And then she confessed. She said, I think I'm addicted to it. I watched it before the Bible hour this morning. I turned it on as soon as I got back to my apartment. I only turned it off when you got here and as soon as you leave, it'll go back on. 
And she was being honest. Has anyone else found themselves struggling like that? Aggression, this impulse to attack and to wound an adversary, it works nothing good in the world at all. Strong, righteous indignation for what's wrong out there in the world, God can use that and does. But aggression like this is nothing like that at all. There are other things that may be besides the news which make you aggressive, but whenever you let yourself be swallowed up by someone else ranting, you train the part of your psyche or the thing in the garden that should not be trained to be aggressive and it makes it harder for Jesus to grow the things in your heart that he wants to grow in them and needs to grow in this world that God loves and needs you to be engaged in without the kind of destruction that comes from aggression. Listen to this invitation also from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse 18. He writes, if it is possible, excuse me, yeah, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Oh, isn't that a wonderful sentence? All three clauses are gifts to us. The last one, be at peace with all. That right there cuts off the boundaries that we want to make. Well, I can be at peace with my people, but not those people. No, the invitation is to be at peace with all. That second clause there, now you're thinking, well, those people, I could never be at peace with them because of the way they do such and this and that and so on. Look, as far as it depends on you, stop looking at what they do that doesn't make peace. And and again, turn to yourself and say, what is within my power to do? And and you you might come up against in certain conflicts, it's just not possible. Well, great, if it is possible. If it's not possible, okay. Maybe there are some conflicts, some issues, some discussions that you just need to steer clear of, and that's that, okay? And, and, and you should turn away, and that's fine. But there are others which we are invited to be agents of peace in right now in the world that God wants to bring about peace in his creation. He wants this garden that he's working on to be the kind of place where people are able to differ without attacking, and there is something that you can do that I can do that will enable that to happen more. And so Christ invites me, Christian, right here, to consider what is possible for me to do in every conflict to bring peace, to leave aside what my adversary chooses and to ask what part can I play in making peace. And then whatever I see, it's my responsibility to do what I can to lower the temperature. Now that's the sixth one that I know of. And now one last, one last weed. For me, when I think of all the ones I've just listed, and then I see how hard it is right now, the last one that tempts me is despair. And it is a a temptation for me to despair. And, And by that I mean to feel grief about how things are right now in the world Uh, which I can't change and which seem so hopeless when I look down the road that all I can think of is how good it used to be and wish I could go back. Does anybody else feel like that? Right? I wish I could go back before maybe 2015. I I, I say maybe there would have been better if I could go back there. Right? Or maybe um, a, a little further back, 2007, before the real estate market crashed and Maybe I could know what was going to happen, but maybe that. And, and before, like, smartphones got so ubiquitous that we stopped looking at each other, maybe I would want to go even further back. And heck, now that I'm at it, why not 1999? Do you remember that? When, like, the scariest thing was Y2K? Gosh. <laughs> what, oh, how hard it was back then. Or, or if, if we're there, why not go back to the 80s? Weren't the 80s the best? Anybody else, yes or no? Yeah. yeah the ni- oh, my gosh. Spandau Ballet, right? Toto. Are you with me? Yeah. Cindy Lauper, most of her songs, not the Bee Gees, okay? Well, 
Sorry if I offended you. I didn't like them. When I look back, imagining life back there, it fuels despair in my heart. Do you know that nostalgia does that? Here's why. It makes me think it would be better if I could go back, but deeper down, I know I can't. You can't go backwards. It's okay to remember and listen to those songs for sure, but, but when, when I'm stuck there, then I can't grow anything because life isn't back there. It's here. And Jesus wants you to be alive right now. He comes to you as the gardener who says, please let me root out everything unhealthy which is growing so that good things can grow. And he does this to me when I despair. He comes to me and he reminds me of the word of one of his apostles, Paul, who in Philippians 3, 13 and 14 said, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Not only does it remind me not to get stuck in the past, but it tells me the truth, and this is the truth for me and you, there is a calling that God has for me, and it is a high calling, and it is a calling in Christ Jesus. The Lord who is alive has a calling for me, and I want you now, open your heart and hear me. You, Jesus has a call for you. Every single one of you who are are hearing my voice right now, the Lord of all, the King of all of creation, the gardener has a call for you right now. He looks at you where you are and what's ahead and what he wants more than anything else is to work in your heart so that his calling becomes a reality in your life so that you are the one who is bearing the fruit that you alone were made to bear in the world and the world needs you to grow it and Jesus is waiting for you to. And when you accept that and look forward, then hope can return and and direct your view forward and accepting who you are in him and looking forward, you can move to a new place and that is what he wants for you. Can we look at all seven uh, uh, all at once? These are the seven demons that Jesus is at work casting out of me, the seven things that grow in this garden that he wants to uproot. If any one of them or more than one of them are yours, would you take note right now and let him direct you in how he wants to be at work uprooting these insecurity, pride, ambition, isolation, suspicion, aggression, despair? These are the ones that are most likely to grow in me. If they are the same for you, then I'm saying this to you and me, let Jesus be at work as the gardener. If there are others for you, whatever they are, let them come to your mind in this moment. Now, maybe it's uh, anxiety for you or fear is what grows in you. Maybe... You have no confidence at all in there. It's self-doubt that is constantly growing in you. Whatever it is, hear this. Jesus is the gracious gardener who is coming to uproot that unhealthy growth, and and you need to let him. And I, I pray that you will. The way that the story ends in John's account of the resurrection, in that reunion between Mary and Jesus, offers us a hint at what it takes to let him grow that thing in you. Look at John 20, 16. This is after Mary mistakes him for the gardener. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. In this moment, Mary decides, this is my teacher. He's the one who's going to teach me. The reason that I brought scripture before us for every one of those Uh, those demons growing in me is that's how Jesus teaches us through scripture. And she decided in that moment, he will be my teacher. And she was able to make that decision because he addressed her by name, Mary. And what you should do right now is hear in your ears, 
the voice of Jesus the Savior whispering your name personally. He comes to us, knows our name. He says to me when I'm insecure, Christian, I love you. He does that for me. Every one of you, he's doing that for you right now. Would you hear it? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that in the power of the Spirit, you come to us and you say our names to us in our hearts because you love us just where we are. And even now, as we're aware of all the things that are growing within us that shouldn't be there, you are not coming to judge and condemn us, but rather to free us by getting to work, removing those things within us that grow nothing good. God, how, however you've spoken to the hearts in this room through your word this morning, I give you thanks, and I ask that the outcome would be the uprooting of unhealthy things and the planting of good seeds for all of us. Please don't let anything which has been heard from you this morning uh, become anything but a seed that grows. And as you've confronted us with our own shortcomings, as I've spoken about the ways that I struggle, I ask for me, as I ask for my brothers and sisters in Christ here, that the outcome would be humility and then trust. That being convicted would result in an openness to let you change us. And that's what we're asking for. Help us grow with your gentle patience. And then make us into the fruit-bearing people and church that the world needs. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.